Welcome back to Pencils Down. On today's episode, I sit down with Vitaly Galome, who is managing partner at GS Capital, a global investment bank based in Silicon Valley. Prior to launching the firm in 2018, Vitaly was founding partner and global evangelist at HP Tech Ventures and served as a C-suite executive and founder for multiple Bay Area technology businesses. We discuss his journey into M&A, how he differentiates GS Capital from the competition, industries that he's excited about and tracking this year, and what he thinks distinguishes Silicon Valley as a deal-making ecosystem. Quick disclaimer that this interview was recorded prior to COVID-19 hitting the United States. So with that, let's get started. Well, Vitaly, first of all, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to the Pencils Down podcast. Thanks for having me. So just to get started, I'd love to learn a little bit more about your background. I mean, obviously, we've connected a few times over the last couple of years, but I'd love to learn more about your story that led you to launch GS Capital. Yeah, so I definitely don't come from a traditional investment banking background. I started very early on as a technology entrepreneur in Silicon Valley as a teenager, first as an intern at a company called Paragraph that became Evernote much later. And I was a young designer and got into the game that way. By the time I was in college, I was running a design team and a dot-com, which consumed me. And I actually took time off of college to be in that world, in the dot-com world. When dot-com became dot-bomb, I came back to more traditional business, ran a commercial printing company. That's where my education lies and then sold that. Started a design firm, ran that for a few years, built it out to about 30 people across several offices, and then got a little bit bored with the service business and started a software startup, ran that until 2015. It was an e-commerce platform venture back for the graphic arts industry and then sold it. Learned a lot in the process and wrote a book, started advising a number of funds, a number of accelerators around the world, traveling a lot, speaking a lot. And then eventually joined Hewlett Packard, helped launch a corporate venture arm there, spent a couple of years on the investment side, doing LP deals, doing direct investments. And really, that was the first time in my career working in a large company. So I spent a couple of years there. Wasn't my pace. And then uh, early 2018, left to start GS Capital with my partner, Giovanni Saletti, who has been in the business investment banking and M&A for two decades, coming from a different background before that as an entrepreneur. And really kind of fell into it on the sell side, let's say, but really talked to the same audience, corporate venture, some family offices. I focus heavily on the category that I know and love, which is mobility. So what led me to it is an advisory project that I did for Remac Automobili, which is a Croatian electric car company that's very famous now as a hypercar electric car company. But I kind of got to know them when they were just eight people and helped them grow and, and raise their B round, which kind of got them to where they are today. So kind of continuation on that. And now I focus on capital raises and M&A, as I mentioned, primarily mobility, but also other categories. We do fintech, media, SaaS, e-commerce, some infrastructure projects, construction tech, very interesting things like that. That's so interesting, Vitaly, because so many of the bankers that I come across and speak with really have a far more conventional background in the sense that they might have worked for a bulge bracket for a number of years before deciding to leave their desk at Goldman or wherever and set up their own boutique. Tell me a little bit about how your unconventional background has become an asset in GS Capital distinguishing itself. You know, I have a mindset of a VC, 
that's where a lot of my experience comes both from raising capital from VCs for years, as well as being on the other side of the table and really maturing my filter of what's a good company, what's a fundable company and kind of talking the talk out there and, you know, written a book about it literally. So when I come at it from that perspective, you know, my education is in computer and video imaging. I'm a graphic designer by education, so I'm far, far away originally from the finance side. And for me, that was always kind of the necessary evil to kind of figure out the numbers side of it. But it's really about the deal. It's about the vision of the technology of the company, about the market opportunity, which gives me a completely different perspective and a way to paint the story of the company that we're advising and advocating for. So what that translates into is kind of a different approach rather than taking a deal and saying, okay, let's put together a financial story and go out there. We actually end up doing quite a bit of strategy work with the companies we work with. We cross the line into management consulting, into marketing consulting to kind of position the company for what's fundable and what would be most interesting and sellable. So I think that makes us quite different than the typical approach, which is really coming in on the financial function more than anything. You know, another thing that's interesting about your background is that you started out in many ways as an operator, and then you found yourself in more of an advisory capacity. I've often seen the trend go in the other way, where people might start out in an advisory capacity and then ultimately become operators. Tell us a little bit about that decision and what you see as being, from a career perspective, what you see as being the pros and cons of being an advisor versus an operator. Well, I mean, there's really two sides to this table, right? Versus three. There's the operator side, and then there's the funder or the deal maker or the banker that kind of, so to say, is on the deal side. For me, it's really equating it to being a player on the field for some time and then becoming a coach. It's really like that. And it allows me to work with on a number of projects at the same time, which kind of satisfies a certain curiosity. And there's a certain satisfaction to be able to kind of multitask for certain people. I certainly have that. So being able to work on several deals at the same time is very satisfying. But really, it is that kind of going from being tactical to strategic and being able to kind of coach perhaps less experienced or younger founders, perhaps doing their first startup and giving them advice, you know, things that I wish I knew 10, 15, 20 years ago and seeing it from a different perspective. So I see that as a natural approach. And you see that much more in venture capital where you have founders who, you know, done a company or two and kind of retired almost to venture capital and they become the funders and the advisors and the mentors. So I see it's kind of that transition. Yeah. And perhaps that's a great segue to learning a little bit more about GS Capital and how you're positioned. You mentioned that clearly your experience as an operator and having been on the funding side of the table gives you a unique window into actually working with many of your clients. Tell us a little bit about how you differentiate GS Capital in the competitive landscape. Obviously, there's a number of boutiques out there, especially out here in the San Francisco Bay Area. Yeah, there's a couple of ways we differentiate naturally. Johnny and I, we're both born in Europe. I was born in Ukraine, grew up in Cupertino, went to the same high school as Steve Jobs in Bosniak. Uh, Johnny was born in Germany, half Spanish, half Italian, kicked around uh, Europe for a while, got his first education there as an architect, and then came to the US to do banking later. So there's definitely that connection. Most of the deals that we do, I would say, are cross-border, especially in the mobility category. A lot of times it's technology and know-how coming out of Europe. 
And the target customer is very likely to be Asia heavily or US market. So a lot of it is that we're cross-cultural. There's not a single person in our shop that doesn't speak at least two languages fluently. And we have some team members in Europe. And that makes us, I think, unique because in Silicon Valley, it's very easy to be very insular and just look at what's around here because we're in the center of the universe and you can afford to be pretty lazy here and not have to go very far to do deals and just kind of locally. But there's a whole wide world out there and it's increasingly becoming much more relevant and interesting and especially in categories that Silicon Valley is not the strongest in when we look outside of software. There are really, really interesting projects out there and there are really interesting strategic investors out there. So that kind of makes us quite different is that you know, more often than not, we are either a bridge to Silicon Valley or from Silicon Valley or in far, far away places with Silicon Valley, you know, what we bring is Silicon Valley mindset. So that's a big element there. The other part of it is that we specialize quite heavily, as I mentioned, you know, we published industry's biggest report on mobility category on the future of mobility in EV and autonomy. We've done a lot of research. We know, I'd say, most of the investors in this space globally, and that means a lot of strategics that are not around the corner here. And we kind of have a thesis, much like VCs would, where we understand the landscape and we have a certain deep understanding and kind of a view down the road on where this category is going. And that makes it easier for us to pick projects, there's no shortage of them, that we invest our time and resources into and back because we know how to place them and we have kind of better than the average investment banker perspective on this particular category. Same thing can be said for fintech, where my partners focus more and have a history in and do a lot of research in. Same thing in infrastructure, where one of our partners is Spanish-born, but speaks seven languages fluently, learned Chinese as an adult, and has done a number of transactions on behalf of various Chinese governments with South America, with Africa, with Asia. I mean, those are kind of things that you don't often hear about. So we just have our particular niche and our approach. And we'd like to you know, get into categories that we can contribute value to and to the conversation. I think what you mentioned earlier about being a bridge between Silicon Valley and other regions of the world that are looking to tap into some of the capital and expertise here is so critical. What are some of the strategies that GS Capital employs to get the word out about who you are and the value that you can deliver? You know, we don't do a whole lot of marketing of ourselves, I should say. I do quite a bit of public speaking, and I have for a number of years as a professional keynote, but also, you know, different events. And for example, this weekend, I'm in Austin, Texas at a mobility event. And, you know, at the end of March, I'm in Portugal at kind of more of economic development event. And this category is red hot. So I find a way to kind of do kind of indirect marketing in that sense. We also have accumulated a very large Rolodex over the years, and people are usually glad to hear from us when we send them updates. We try to be valuable and send them insights. That's probably the extent of how we market ourselves. Otherwise, we get a lot of inbound interest, and we have the luxury of being able to choose which projects that we want to dedicate ourselves to. And when we work with our clients, with the companies we're advising, you know, a lot of times it's talking them out of bad ideas. For example, seed stage companies out of Europe trying to come to San Francisco too early, for example. That's an area that I find myself talking about at least several times a week with somebody and even wrote a blog post on Medium about it, which gone somewhat viral because that's a topic that most people don't understand very well and they don't understand the dynamics and Silicon Valley investors are not going to invest in you know foreign startups usually, especially at early stage. So yeah, I mean, that's really what it is. I mean, I'm a Silicon Valley native, more or less. I grew up here. So that gives me additional ability to kind of explain 
how the world works here to everybody that's now getting on a plane and coming over here every day. I'm certainly not going to be the first person to say that the world is changing at an accelerated pace, but do you believe that Silicon Valley is going to continue to be an indispensable place to come and fundraise in the future? And what do you see as being the other regions of the world that are going to start to give Silicon Valley a run for its money? So there's a couple of different ways to look at this. So uh, first of all, very important factor is that this is not a zero-sum game. The fact is that in the next 20 years, the world economy will double. So that means that the pie will increase and it's no longer Silicon Valley or another place. It's going to be increasingly Silicon Valley and other places, right? Certainly, we know that Beijing and Shanghai are areas that have virtually overnight in a few years, at least in 2018, matched the size of Silicon Valley's venture industry. They fell somewhat in 2019, but regardless, kind of the point was made that there's capacity for at least the size of capital. Now, what makes Silicon Valley special is not the capital itself, although there's plenty of it and it's smart, but we have, let's say, seven decades of technology entrepreneurship experience here. That is not possible to replicate that quickly. So there's a reason that companies, especially in the software space, if they need to scale, you know, if they're succeeding and they're scaling and becoming a unicorn, you know, it's very, very difficult to do it outside of Silicon Valley. And the reason for that is when within a year you're growing from 10 people to 100 people to 1,000 people, the connective tissue that keeps all of that together is experience management layer. And in Silicon Valley, at any given point, we have 50, 60, 70,000 experienced kind of director level managers that have gone from zero to hero with technology company that have done it all before. If you look at other regions, like for example, New York, maybe there's a few hundred people that have done that. If you look at other ecosystem hubs like London or Shanghai or Beijing or any of these other places, you know, there are very few individuals. So that's really the resource that's unique to Silicon Valley. And we have this very mature cluster and ecosystem that other places just don't have. And you cannot replicate overnight. You need generations, technology, entrepreneurship to generate that level of kind of institutional know-how in the population. So that's my kind of long explanation, long answer to that question. On the other hand, I'm on the board of the Ukraine Venture Capital Association, huge proponent of my birth country, and try to do everything possible to help out there, including you know helping the government try to figure out a fund of funds to kind of replicate what Israel did so successfully in the 90s to build their tech ecosystem. So it is possible, and my perspective is that Silicon Valley will be the champion and the center point and the center of the universe and technology for the coming decades, without a doubt. But there will be other relevant places where people can you know, stay home or go to other ecosystem hubs. And depending on the industry they're going after, they can be just as successful or even more so. Yeah, super interesting perspective, Vitaly. I mean, I'm also now thinking about the innovation side of the equation. I don't know if you saw a couple months ago, 60 Minutes had a special on the future of AI innovation in China and how quickly the Chinese, for example, have been growing up just focused on AI innovation. Just wondering if you have any perspectives there on particular regions of the world that you and GS is focused on in terms of potentially identifying future clients to work with on a fundraise, let's say. Yeah, so I mean, the definition of innovation is something pretty flexible, right? The question is, how do you define it? Do you define it in the number of patents that are being written in a particular category? Do you define it by amount of venture capital that's going in a particular region and particular category? So if you kind of zoom out and rest in peace, Clayton Christensen, if you look at the technology S-curve, right, for a long time with every new technology wave, 
there's a big investment in time and resources that's going into developing that technology, right? So that's the R&D phase. And at a certain point, we reach a sweet spot where that technology is being commercialized. And that's when you have a window of two to 10 years, depending on what it is, where you're seeing incredible value being created by startups that are using this new technology, newly available technology, to solve existing problems in 10 times faster, better, cheaper, or solving something that wasn't even done before. So when we're talking about innovation, what does that mean? Are we talking about R&D phase where we're talking about academics writing patents or we're talking about commercialization and making products out of it? So the R&D phase is heavily dependent on the quality of research institutions. And that's where China is kicking ass right now, pardon my French, where they have several world-class universities where no longer do Chinese have to be the sea turtles to come to the US or a couple of universities in Europe, do the PhD work there and then go home a decade later, or if never, they can stay home and do it there, right? So there's a number of world-class, you know, top 10 universities where China made a very conscious, very substantial investment in building up the academia to be able to generate kind of inventions, innovations at the academic level at home, right? So the question is then, let's say, U.S. is probably still dominant there, but China is a close number two. It depends on how you measure, maybe number one in some particular subcategories. Europe has fallen behind a little bit. Africa is not online yet. And Latin America is in big, big trouble because Latin America doesn't have a whole lot of institutions in the top 100, top 200 in relevant fields. So that's one aspect of it. The other aspect of it is how do you then apply that commercially? The question is, okay, when you're creating this base technology and in artificial intelligence, you know, what does that mean? You're not going to just you know, take a pure AI, quote unquote, company public. You're going to apply that particular technology to a set of problems. It could be autonomous driving. It could be fintech. It could be healthcare. That's when you start really looking at you know, where does that technology innovation happen? Where does it get applied? And we haven't quite reached that point yet, but we're already starting to see some previews. So autonomous driving, obviously, that's computer vision, machine learning, those kind of elements. We're going to see it in flight. We're going to see it in healthcare, et cetera. It's starting to get applied. So that, again, kind of a long-winded answer, but hopefully insightful because this is an area that I pay particularly special attention to. Thank you for that. And just to switch gears quickly, I understand that you were recently moderating a panel of the World Economic Forum. And since many of us weren't there, I guess one question I had for you was, what surprised you about your time at Davos this year or on the panel? What was a perspective or a conversation point happening among the attendees that you didn't anticipate? You know, what was actually really nice to hear and see is that you have really captains of industry and very influential people and a lot of government really putting their attention on climate. This was undoubtedly the theme this year, where last year and the year before that, it was crypto, 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 which is a little silly and is not very applicable yet. This year, you know, we're talking about really tangible problems. And I don't know if you saw or your audience may have seen that Goldman Sachs David Solomon announced there at Davos that they will no longer take companies public that don't have at least a single female board member, which is really interesting. So we're starting to see a lot of really important things to the planet, to humanity, you know, way beyond this business that are being emphasized. And there was a lot of discussion about impact investing and really investing not just for returns, but 
the fact that investing into really important areas then generates positive returns because there's so much attention going into it now. So it was really heartening to see kind of the tire hit the road as far as all these discussions. And usually what happens in Davos, they like to say, doesn't stay in Davos. The opposite of Las Vegas, that's the desired effect. And hopefully we'll see that in 2020, we're going to see that penetrate business. So that was very positive. The other element, going back to Ukraine, I've been involved with the Ukraine house in Davos for the last three years. There was a lot of really positive things. You know, no secret, I think, to most that a technological powerhouse, but now with the new government there, it's being cleaned up and becoming a very positive business environment. So you're going to hear a lot more about Ukraine in a very positive light in the coming years, hopefully. You know, you did mention 2020, and I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you, what in particular are you excited about this year? And what are some of the trends that you're tracking that perhaps you're less excited about? What's exciting is to see, for example, a lot of things have been talked about for a long time, a lot of technologies that haven't hit the prime time. I think this year you're going to start to see things go commercial uh, quite a bit more, especially in electric vehicles. There's been a lot of run-up. There's a lot of you know investment over the last five years or more where a lot of car companies and a lot of commercial vehicles and two-wheeled vehicles, flying things, all of them have been talking about working on things in R&D phase, you're going to start seeing some things start selling this year, which is very exciting to see. From the investment banking perspective, that means that we're going from a 100% fundraising cycle to potentially some consolidation, some M&A coming in the next 12 to 24 months, kind of starting to see that. So that's an interesting transition to watch, particularly in that category. Exciting things happening in fintech as well. Interestingly, you're starting to see big European fintech players start to jump the ocean, going to Latin America, coming into the US in some cases as well. So it's really interesting to see these things kind of start working, right? Start getting a lot more commercial than they were before. I think as far as what I think was hype, and it's starting to show itself as hype. It's, for example, autonomous driving. We're nowhere near it being commercial ready for probably longer than most people think. I would say probably another three to five years at least until you see it like really be substantial. And there are some companies that shall rename nameless that have been kind of hyping this category for their own benefit. But it's something that is still far away, right? And for various technical reasons that we could talk about for another hour. And I'm glad to see that the world is kind of coming to its senses as far as blockchain technology and understanding that, you know, for something to disrupt an industry, it has to be twice as good at half the price. And when it's solving a non-problem, it's very difficult for that equation to work. How do you measure something twice as good if it's solving something that's not really a problem? So it's nice to see that people are kind of starting to calm down and be much more reasonable and practical about it. So you've been at GS Capital or you launched it about two years ago, if I'm correct. I guess one question I had for you is, if you could give yourself advice, the two-year younger version of you advice about launching a boutique, what would be the key pieces of advice that you would give? You know, I think we did a decent job ramping up pretty quickly. But I would say, just like I would tell any founder of any new business, is to really focus and make sure that you're not like that old story about the dog running between two castles and starving to death, not being able to make up its mind. It's very important with these types of businesses is to brand yourself and to get out of the gates as kind of your chosen area that you want to work in. That doesn't mean that you're not flexible to pivot and kind of change the way you approach the market if the market responds in a way you don't expect. But really choosing a particular area you want to specialize in and focus in because you can't do everything and you can't be the best at everything. 
So that's really the area that I would focus on. And that goes for especially any technology startup, but any service business as well. You want to be very focused. Who do you approach and how do you differentiate yourself and how are you going to be the right person in the room versus somebody else? Absolutely. Well, Vitaly, I wanted to thank you so much for taking the time out of your schedule to join us at the Pencils Down podcast. Really wish you the best here in 2020 and look forward to having you back on soon. Sounds good. Thanks so much. That's it for today. Special thanks to Vitaly Galome and GS Capital. You can rate and review Pencils Down on Apple Podcasts. Got a question for us? Send us an email at pencilsdown at finalis.com. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to Pencils Down on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded. 